she was born in Saigon, Vietnam. Uh, she was raised in Seattle and earned a PhD from Cambridge University. Uh, and she is an amazing historian, uh, an amazing leader, has experienced um, hard things, and yet at the same time has turned those hard things uh, into leadership and life lessons. She wrote a book called Seven Forms of Respect, which is an incredible book on how we give and respect to others. Her name is Dr. Julie Pham, and we are excited on this edition of Crossing the Line to have her as our guest. Thank you for joining Crossing the Line, where we talk with leaders about the moments in their life and the moments in their leadership where they cross that line from leading with their head to leading with their heart and from leading with their heart to leading with their head. This particular episode, uh, you're really going to enjoy. I was intrigued by, by Julie Pham. Uh, uh, Dr. Pham, or Julie as she likes to be called, it brings just a humility. Um, she, she brings a wealth of knowledge, a wealth of experience. And in this interview, we kind of talk about all of that. And then she gives us some really good things to think about, even an illustration uh, around a rubber band that I will take with me and I'll remember for a long, long time. So I think you're in for a treat. Thank you for joining us. This is season four of Crossing the Line. Let's jump into our interview with Dr. Julie Pham. So, Dr. Julie Pham, welcome to Crossing the Line. I'm so glad you're with us. Thanks for coming today. Thank you so much for having me here. Uh, listen, I think this is going to be a fun podcast. Um, you're, you're one of those people, Julie, that I can just tell I'm going to like you. We've talked a little bit and, and before this and kind of prepped and some people you just know, right? Hey, I'm going to like her and uh, I've enjoyed our conversation. So I'm going to enjoy this this today. Hey, let's um let's do this. Let's kind of think back, and um, I want to hear your story. So I want you to go back, Julie, to oh, you're you're like six, seven years old, somewhere in that range. Um, what is a, a day in the life of Julie like when she's a six or seven, eight year old? So, uh, six year uh, elementary school Julie, growing up with two younger brothers. My parents worked all the time and I was a, I was independent from a very young age and I was expected to really help my two younger brothers. Uh, and I want to share actually a story of that, something that happened when I was around that age that was right. transformative, which is I was there. I was one of two Asian American girls in my class. And my best friend, and Trisha was my best friend. She was the other Asian American girl. I got sick for a week. And then when I came back, she said, I can't be your best friend anymore. Oh. Because I've become, be because now I'm hanging out with the popular girls. And oh. I didn't have any friends. It was hard for me to make friends. And so I actually ended up, Larry, I ended up talking. I had an imaginary friend in a tree. And I just <laughs> basically talked to this tree for, I don't know, for the rest of that school year until some other um, kids moved in and, 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 and I was able to have friends. And so I would say that early experience was that um, people can leave. Mm. People can leave. So here it is once again, she grew up independent and she, she had to, to find out a very difficult lesson. She had to learn a very difficult lesson very early on people leave, people leave. 
but yet she turned that. Stay tuned. Later on, what I ended up learning to do was to uh, was to kind of be what they call floaters in school, where I had actually lots of friends, lots of different groups, instead of being tied to any one person. Because in that, I had this one friend who then left me for the popular kids. Wow. And yeah. You know, those are such hard lessons in life, Julie. That is, you, you know, it's it's we sit here now and reflect, but when you're in that, I mean, it is real and it's hard and kudos to you for, you know, Hey, you were creative enough to, to create a imaginary friend to, to cope. We call that, you know, in the psychology world, your coping mechanisms. And, mm-hmm. and that's great that, that you did that, but, but, I, but I'm so interesting. I love what you said. I've learned a life lesson there and, and you carried that with you through, through your childhood. People leave. Mm-hmm. you that's a that and that's I, it's a, not feeling abandoned it's feeling it's more I, I take it as oh well I can't rely on one person mm. for that source of all of my um for the source of to have that one relationship actually I should have lots of different relationships and lots of different friendships I love that so it, it, it kind of broadened your scope huh oh absolutely and absolutely. did I hear you say you, you turned into a, what you called a floater is yeah, that right? I turned into what I call a floater, just having lots of different, uh, lots of different groups of friends. I didn't want to be identified in any one clique. Love it. By so, defined by my group of friends, because sometimes I think when um, children in high school, particularly hmm. middle school, high school, you get defined by who you're friends with. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and when I went to college, which was a big public school, it was what I really loved about that was people didn't know you by people didn't know me by who I hung out with. People knew me by, Oh, we're in history class together. Mm-hmm. You know, the, and we're going to go back and talk about you as a junior high high, but just for a minute, it is really refreshing to get to college and go, Oh, thank goodness. I, you know, the, the little high school clicks are no more and people look at you differently. Cool. Takes on a whole new meaning, you know, mm-hmm. if there is even, even is such a thing in college. So that that's kudos for you for, recognizing that but take me back so you're you're a junior you had a you know childhood your best friend said hey I'm going over here your mom and dad are working you said you grew up where you were very independent what were some of the things during that time let's say you're you know you're a child up to junior high somewhere around in there the independent what are things that that you learned and describe some of that independence to us yeah, I mean, part of it was because I uh, I was born in Vietnam. My parents and I came here as boat people when I was two months old. And so uh, and my parents continued to work in the Vietnamese community. They started a Vietnamese newspaper when I was about seven years old. Wow. And, um, and so I was navigating a lot in terms of just translating, in terms of just kind of being their translator in the world. And, and sometimes it's not because I, it's actually not because I mean, actually, when I entered elementary school, I was I grew up in that period of assimilation. And so it was, um, I, I then just moved into English. It was just speaking in English slowly. Because to help that, so it wasn't that I was speaking Vietnamese, right. literally translating from Vietnamese, uh, from English to Vietnamese. It was more of, I would listen to what the uh, on the, I would call it the operator, the customer service people, and I would hear what they were asking for. And then I would just explain it to my parents in ways that would be easy for them to understand. And I'm mm. literally in elementary, middle school English, right? She learned responsibility. She learned uh, how to work. It's that, that same thing we hear over and over again. 
these leaders, these strong leaders, uh, learned a work ethic at a very young age. She learned at a very young age how to take responsibility and how to work hard. And then also, I mean, my parents worked all the time, so I understood very much the value of work. Again, I, I didn't, I never felt abandoned. It was just like, well, this is the way it is. And so yeah. we had this system because I would take care of my two younger brothers um, and my mom would, she would leave me, uh, they would leave me home alone and there would be a ringing system. It'd be like ring, ring, ring. And I had to pick up the phone. And if mm -hmm. I didn't pick up the phone, then she would have to go, she would have to drive home to check in. That was not a good thing. Yeah, that was not, I mean, you know, and my parents, I mean, they, you know, they have their own business, so it's flexible, but they had to work. And so I, I grew up knowing that there was, that, that, that was, it was without a question like that was important. Were you the oldest sibling? Yeah, the oldest and my younger brothers are uh, two and three years younger. So we're all so, really tight. So you really were responsible for them, even mm -hmm. as a young child. Yes. How did that work? So now we're at 13, 14, 15. You're entering in, into high school, you know, coming out of junior high. You're in, And it is, unfortunately, you know, being cool is important and having friends is important. But yet your parents needed you and you were having you know I, I, did that did that conflict with your social life talk to us about that what because i'm really interested in what made you who you are and the, let me tell you this already you've taught me so much about the importance of being independent and you said you broke down the language and slowed it down for your parents you're already leading them julie it's amazing and we see this pattern uh in the leaders that we talk to that you learn from an early age how to be independent and then how to lead others anyway i get excited about yeah yeah kind of so, and so, so i you, mean it wasn't really until uh i would say seventh seventh grade where i actually started to make friends i mean i had grade. different yeah so i had different friends but they weren't there was a um but really it was like in seventh grade when i started to have um, these different friendships and really and that's where I would say the, the floating started and so I mean and actually I'm we're all independent my brothers and I were also all taught to kind of be independent and I remember um, we had three options for food because <laughs> it would be coming home and then in the fridge there would be uh, Costco pizza there would be spaghetti and there would be this Vietnamese uh, caramelized pork dish and so we had three options. And so for me, I never thought of variety as an important thing. And so it was just like, you know, it's just like, what are my three options? Because like my mom would, would, uh, she'd pick us up, um, drop us off and then go back to work. And so it's like, okay, we're, we're on our own. And, um, and then also once I turned 16, I was driving. I mean, there was no question because then I became the, um, I became the driver for my family because up to that point, my parents had to drive us around and it was a burden right. for them. And so Larry, I got into like four car accidents before I turned 18. Oh. <laughs> and in each time my parents are like, yeah, you got to keep going. And so I actually think that really taught me a lesson of risk tolerance later mm. on in life. Cause it was like, well, and I mean, I'm really fortunate that in all of those, no one got hurt. It was really just the vehicles. I mean, some of the vehicles got really banged up, but no one got hurt in, in any of those four. And it taught me that, um, you know, things happen and we got to keep moving. And so, yes, I would say that there's, um, and then in high school, I got really involved in the, the school newspaper and debate and all these different extracurricular activities. Uh, and, and I really, I really tried to just have different groups of friends. So even in at the lunch, at lunchtime, 
I would sit here for like 15 minutes and then I would go over to another table and it literally it was it was floating someone years later told me oh I saw those kids and I always felt sad for them and I was like oh I didn't I thought it was cool that I have lots of different groups of friends and I still have that to this day I actually belong to I feel like have lots of different um belong to lots of different circles so you you brought that into who you are as an adult mm -hmm. wow that's a valuable lesson and and I think a very um important one as leaders that you can get to where other people are even translated into in the leadership principles if you will all right so here we are we're in high school you're floating um you're, you're you're in a lot of different things you're learning to debate obviously you're involved in the newspaper amazing so what happens next T take it from there and tell us the next piece of the story mm -hmm. so i um i befriended i think it was a sophomore or a junior in uh high school uh i had some very ambitious friends who basically said hey you don't have to go to school in state you could go to school out of state, you could go to, and so I had friends who were applying to Ivy Leagues. And so, I mean, I always thought, okay, I'll stay at, um, in Seattle, I'll go to the University of Washington. That's what my, um, that's what most of my friends did. And yet I had some friends who were just, you should, you should strive for more. You should strive for more. She surrounded herself with friends who said you should strive for more. And she did. Wow, what an important leadership lesson about taking coaching from others uh, at an, even at a, at a young age and realizing that when you surround yourself with those um, overachievers who say you can, you can do more, it helps us to, to really do that. And I think so much of our life is actually, so much of what we do is influenced by who we surround ourselves with. And so having these friends, having a few friends who were just super ambitious made me think, oh, well, maybe I should apply out of state. And so I ended up, um, I ended up applying and, and getting into Berkeley. Um, and so that's where I went for my undergrad. Oh, wow. And, and that's really where um, I became the person, person that I like. It's, it's such a, um, you know, and I, I'm, I'm a big believer in things happen for a reason. Mm. Uh, because my first choice school is actually Wellesley which is the opposite of Berkeley, literally, right? Wow. Like geographically, <laughs> oh, yeah. so many different, so different, right? Oh, yeah. And I got waitlisted there. And um, and I just, and I remember talking to someone, it was a one of those college interviews and they, it was a student there at the time. She's like, yeah, there's a lot of diversity here. We even have people on financial aid. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay. So, All right. Uh, this, is the, this is the mid nineties. And I was like, all right. And um, so I'm actually really glad I, I went to Berkeley. Oh um, man. That's yeah. awesome. So what was it like at Berkeley? Well, you know, um, it was, it's Berkeley's just such a special place. I love California. I gotta say, first of all, I love California. Um, I remember my first semester there because I was in a way I was a foreigner and I had a bunch of friends who were also out-of-staters. <laughs> and then I was like, well, how did Californians think it's just the best place? And then after a semester, I was like, California is amazing. <laughs> place. <laughs> California is an amazing place. I love and, it. And, um, and I thought I was going to study, I, I told my parents I was going to study business law because Berkeley is a great law school and a great business school. And I fell in love with history. Mm. My first semester I just fell in love with my first history class. Mm. And um, and I, I really think of history as the intersection. It's at the crossroads of um, social science and humanities. Mm. So if you think yeah. of social science, 
right? Social scientists are looking for truth because they believe there is such a thing, right? There's empirical truth. Right. In humanities, everything is a story and there is no such thing as truth. And so I think history as a discipline more than any other discipline sits mm. right at that intersection, mm. you know, that tension between truth and fiction. Mm -hmm. And like, we're striving for truth because we believe, because we believe there's truth. And yet we kind of know that there's no truth. And so wow. we're constantly struggling with that. So, um, and I really loved that about history and I loved, um, learning about the, uh, actually not just the history itself, the events themselves, but the people who are writing the history and how history was written and the, the perspectives that go into that. And so I ended up, uh, very, um, very early on getting into research and into historical research. And I ended up, um, getting really interested in the, the Vietnam war. Yeah. And, and then, I, what I discovered was, um, hey, why do the, and my family, like I said, we're both people, refugees from Vietnam, and my father had fought in the, served in the South Vietnamese um, Navy uh, during the, the war, and I realized that that perspective wasn't, was overlooked in so many, in all of the history books I was being taught, and so, and also in the films, and so I got really interested in that. And that's actually when, as a sophomore, I started to do original research, and my father helped introduce me to uh, to veterans, to South Vietnamese veterans who shared their story. And I ended up actually uh, putting writing a thesis based on interviews with forty South Vietnamese veterans about their perspective of the Vietnam War. Can you can you capitalize capitalize that for us? Can you mm -hmm. put it in a kind of help me? I'm intrigued now. You've got me interested. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, tell me what did you what were your takeaways as you interviewed those forty guys and you did this this unique research? What what? Did so you I'll say this: the people, the way that the Vietnam War is portrayed in the U.S. is that it's between the Vietnamese and the Americans, and the Vietnamese are de facto the North Vietnamese, the communists. The the people who get left out are the South Vietnamese and mm. Americans were our allies. And so even though it's our war, we actually get written out of the story of the war. Wow. Right. And so if you would look at things like Apocalypse Now or uh, Good Morning Vietnam, you see like where the South Vietnamese, it's like very American centered. So that's yeah. one of the big findings. And then in, in the other one, it's just that a lot of veterans that I talked to, they just wanted to, they're, um, it was, well, we're, we lost, and yet we're also we've also lost our place in the history of this war. And so they just wanted to be able to talk about the complexities and all the different stories and feelings and mixed feelings that they had in serving. And and I'm also I'm not a political historian, so I don't like to go why did people lose and what were the political forces. And right. for me, I'm much more interested in like what were people's memories and why do we remember what we remember? And it's not mm. about. I mean, even just. I guess my big takeaway is we focus too much on the lessons. We focus too much on the lessons, she says, and, and listen to what she's going to challenge us with. I, I think it makes, uh, oh man, it makes a lot of sense. Instead of focusing on the lessons, she's going to tell us, let's focus on something else. What if we focused on the people and what they were experiencing? Oh, that's a brilliant thought. You know, when people are like, oh, let's, what, what are the... The, let's get the lessons of the Vietnam War, not do that again, as if we, as if you, we won't repeat, repeat mistakes. Yeah. And I don't think that's the point. Right. We are because like wars happen. 
That's right. Right. It's it, because yeah, wars happen because bad things happen. Right. And, 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 and so wars are going to happen and it's more of how do we tell, how do we recognize that people are experiencing different things mm. through so, these different events? We have different memories. Here's my question. I'm going to shoot ahead a little bit because yeah, yeah. something I wanted to ask you about, mm-hmm. but these, these men that you, that you interviewed from South mm-hmm. Vietnam, they were forgotten. They were, it was their war. I mean, they, we were just the allies, right? And you, and then did you get the overwhelming feeling that they felt? And I don't want to, I'm not trying to minimize what they went through at all, but was it disrespect because of, even though they lost? And like you said, wars will happen, but mm-hmm. is it the real, one of the real issues here that we disrespected a whole group of people, a whole, you know, countries South Vietnamese by cutting them out of their own war. I mean, help me. Yeah. Yes. Cutting the, not remembering their part, right. Not honoring their, like why, why we fought in the first place. I mean, sometimes I'll talk to people who's like, Oh, I'm sorry what we, you know, Oh, you're Vietnamese. I'm sorry what we did to you. It's like, you know, we were fighting on the same side. Hmm. Right. Like, and, and you were actually helping us. <laughs> so so, you know, and so, yes. So I would say that it's that feeling of being forgotten. It's, it's, um, uh, and, and for some also feeling betrayed too. Sure. And as you look and study history as a historian, um, in the areas that you have researched, how, how accurate are we in what you have been taught, what we're teaching in our schools, in your opinion, are we fairly accurate in our history or are we not accurate in our history? So, I mean, Larry, you're kind of getting at that. Is it true or not? And, you know, you know, and so I think it's more about have we shared different perspectives. Mm, different. That's it. Cause it's, it's not, it's so not, it's not. Yeah. And because I really think that we are going to have different memories. I lived in Vietnam while I was working on my um, PhD and, um, and the way that the war is remembered there is completely different, right? Because it's communist Vietnam. And those memories and those experiences are also legitimate. Yes. So it's just like, the, what it shows is like, we will remember and have different experiences. And how do we be curious enough to want to understand that whatever we think is the truth might not be the only truth. How do we be curious enough to realize that our perspectives may not be the same as others? What we believe to be truth may not be the real truth. Incredible question to ask ourselves. So how important is being curious? Is that oh, important? Oh my gosh. I mean, you know, the name of my company is Curiosity Based. <laughs> Here <laughs> so you go, you, softball You know, you know, you know, you know. Um, and actually, so after, I, uh, so after I left academia and I came back to Seattle and helped run my family's Vietnamese newspaper, and I started to do a lot of community building. And in that, um, I'm bringing together people, volunteers. And what I discovered was some people did really well and other people really struggled. And I got to tell you, Larry, I was one of the people who really struggled in the beginning. I really struggled because I was so focused on what are we doing here? What's the outcome? How are we going to get that? How are we going to achieve that? And if we didn't, I was like pretty grumpy. (laughs) So, you know, why are we here? Uh, 
why, why are we spending all this time on icebreakers and getting to know each other, <laughs> right? And what I learned over time was that the people, people gravitated to, the, to those who took joy in learning mm. and discovery mm. and making time for like, wow, yeah, we didn't get what we thought or maybe what we thought we wanted has changed. And how do we be curious about that? People are drawn, they gravitate to those who enjoy learning. Wow, what a great principle for, for us to remember that, that people like to be around others who are curious, who are learning, and listen to what she's about to say about curiosity. And I, I now actually think of curiosity as a practice. I used mm. to think of it as a trait. I mean, I think usually we describe it as something, be curious. You just got to have some curiosity, right? And I actually now describe it as a practice. And what I mean by that is I liken it to meditation. Mm. Meditation looks easy, right. but it's really hard, right? right. And so right. there are going to be days where it's actually easier for me to practice curiosity than other days. And so sometimes I'm going to be able to practice curiosity and be open and to listen carefully. And other days, I just don't agree and I don't want to be open. Or I want to persuade. I yeah. mean, how often have we been in a conversation where it's like, yeah. I know that we disagree and I'm just going to listen for the points that I can then like counter. Yeah. Yeah. Listen to react. Yeah. 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 So it's, yeah, that, so we don't, you know, how often do we not listen to understand, but listen to respond. Yeah. And so that's, um, and so that's why, I mean, I actually think we kind of take curiosity for granted and it's actually a lot harder. It's a lot harder than um than it looks seeing curiosity as a practice wow seeing it as something we must grow a muscle in we must we must learn we must develop we must get better at puts a new perspective on my thinking around curiosity what i try to do is kind of acknowledge the times when i'm not practicing curiosity i mean larry i've walked out at intermission on plays that i didn't like or performances I didn't like, right? I was not curious enough or I didn't read the end of the book because I was like, no, it's not good. Yep. Yep. I, I tell you, we talk a lot about growth mindsets. And I think that part of a growth mindset is to to remain curious. And so many times I don't allow myself to get there because I've already predetermined my opinion before I've and quite frankly, it it's uh lazy. It's because I'm too lazy to really struggle with you know learning something i i think i already know or i think i already have an opinion on right yeah but larry i mean we also have to give ourselves grace because sometimes we are and you know you call it lazy it's something i'm like i'm just tired we're at, okay <laughs> <laughs> i'm just tired i don't because because again practicing curiosity can take effort right and we can't i just think it's unrealistic to expect us to be curious all the time can we practice curiosity when can we reserve that energy for when we think it's going to really matter? Mm. You, you know, you're brilliant. You have, you have such wisdom, Julie. And I, I love what you said. We have to give ourselves grace sometimes. Um, I could talk to you all day, but I, I need to get to, to <laughs> another thing. Cause it's really important. Uh, as we, as we get through this, we may come I back. I feel the same this. way about you too, Larry. So <laughs> uh, can we come back and do this again though? Yes, I'd, yes. Oh, I'd love to Julie. So this is an incredible book that you have have written amazing amazing and we want you to to take a minute and tell us about how you got it then i have a question for you about mm -hmm. it um in just a minute but tell us a little bit about this book okay so seven forms of respect 
Uh, the idea here is that we can agree on what respect feels like and we'll disagree on what it looks like. We may not agree on what it looks like. Mm. And so, for example, maybe you want to be, you maybe you want me to CC you on all emails, but I'm like, why would, I'm only going to CC you on emails that I think you should read. And yet you're like, no, I just want, I just want that FYI. Whereas I'm like information on a need to know basis only. <laughs> right. Right. And so some people will feel disrespected if they're not added to an email. And some people will feel disrespected if they are added to emails. Right. Right. Cause like, why are you wasting my time? So, so what it, it's about that we all, um, respect is actually contradictory. It's mm. relative, it's subjective. Mm. Um, and it's very, it's, and it's dynamic. And yet the way we talk about respect as if it's fixed and universal, right? Wow. We say, I want you to respect me. You're right. But, and what we're not getting at is like, we have different ideas of what that means. Mm. And, and then here is the other thing, you know, I shared how I belong to all these different groups, right? The thing is we all belong to different communities, identities, and cultures at the same time. Yeah. Right. Oh, there's so many different Venn diagrams. You yeah. Know? yeah. And, and all of that is impacting how I think about respect and how I interact with pe people, different people. Right. And so, um, and so I wanted to write a book that was not prescriptive. And what I mean by that is I think a lot of um, sometimes uh, leadership books can say, go do this. Right. This is how you. Yeah. Five tips, be. three keys. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. It. Yeah. And this is, and this is like, Ashley, I wanted this book to help people explain, oh, why am I doing what I'm doing? Mm. And going back to the practicing curiosity part, because I think of curiosity having uh, the practice of curiosity, having three elements. The first being self-awareness. The second is relationship building. And the third is clear communication. Mm -hmm. And so that first part is, how do I think about respect? Who and what has influenced how I think about respect? And if I can realize that I have my personal stories behind that, then I can, mm -hmm. then I can accept that maybe someone else has different stories that mm -hmm. inform how they think about it. And that I can actually, rather than being like, you disrespected me, it's like, well, how do you see respect? Because maybe we're seeing it differently. Yeah. That's so good, Julian. One size does not fit all. Would you would you talk a little bit about the uh, rubber band theory? Yes. Will you talk about that? Yes, and I have a rubber band here. <laughs> so, so it's in contrast, uh, or just a golden rule. That's how most people talk about respect. Treat people how you want to be treated, right? And the question there is, what if someone doesn't want to be treated the way you want to be treated? So I think if there's the rubber band rule, which is actually shows we're flexible as humans, we can flex, we can accommodate. Oh, I know Larry likes this. So I'll do that. Even though I'm kind of ambivalent about it, but I know it matters to Larry. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, and we can stretch, but what happens over time is maybe there's some things we actually don't care about that we don't like. And yet we find ourselves doing it to accommodate other people because we want to please other people. And what oh. will happen is we'll snap and break mm. like a rubber band. And so with the rubber band rule, it's about understanding what are my breaking points? Mm. What's going to make me Good. snap? Because I got to name that for myself. Yes. I got to know that for myself and then be able to, I have to name it for myself before I share it with someone else. And uh, because oftentimes what I hear people say is like, ah, they're being disrespectful. Well, why? Well, because they, you know, they just were. They're not able to name, we're not able to name like what were, what were the behaviors that mm -hmm. upset me? How often have we seen people leave workplaces that was like that workplace was toxic? 
but we're not actually able to know. We never expressed why or what's happening. Yeah. So, and and recognizing that breaking point, I guess, helps us to to be more more holistic in our own being mm-hmm. and able to continue to be flexible if we know what those breaking points. That's brilliant. Yeah. I yeah. love that. We and have what, to know our boundaries. We have to know our boundaries. boundaries. That's the word. Yes, that's yes. what I was looking for. Right so before we snap and break. Yeah. Instead of like, no, I can stretch a little more because I am so accommodating, <laughs> right? And yeah. I mean, how often, you know, you see people who are like, no, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay that you're late. No problem. I've just been right. waiting here for like, <laughs> right? Right. Mm-hmm. Which leads to even more toxicity in the relationship. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. You are brilliant. I'm going to tell you, Julie, I'm looking forward to us continuing and having conversation unfortunately um our time is up for this podcast but your insight your wisdom i'm excited this book amazing around respect Uh, i've learned so much today thank you for being a bit vulnerable and sharing with us uh some of your past and some of the things that that you had to overcome and how you've used that to become the leader you are today and helping us all to understand respect and, and the rubber band rule. I love that. I'll take, I'll take that with me. Uh, Dr. Julie Pham, you are amazing. Thank you for joining us today on Crossing the Line. Thank you so much, Dr. Larry Little. <laughs> so- Well, I hope that you enjoyed that. I'll tell you, I learned a lot from that. Uh, Dr. Julie Pham is an incredible leader. Uh, Her story of being raised to be independent, her life lessons that that people leave, and that's okay. Learning to be a a floater, if you will, and have a diverse group of friends. Um, Then then growing with that growth mindset and that, that passion for curiosity, becoming an incredible historian who who explored that tension between history and, and social science, using that uh, in her life and in her career. Uh, a reminder to give give myself a little grace. We, we need to give ourselves grace when we talk about curiosity. And, and then how how she, she wrote a, a wonderful book on respect. And who knew that you could learn a lesson on respect from a rubber band? Uh, it was a, a really neat time for me. I hope it was for you. Uh, thank you for joining us here on Crossing the Line. Uh, we are working hard to, to make sure we continue to provide content for you that's meaningful and purposeful. And I hope we've hit that mark today. And I hope you'll join us again in this season four of Crossing the Line in order to make a difference in the lives of others. <music>